Hi, thank you very much for tuning in. Whether you are listening to this as a podcast or you're watching the video, thanks for joining me. My name is Dave, and this is a Through the Bible study. Each week, we are going through a different chapter of the book of Acts. Before this, we did Matthew. After this, we'll very likely move on to Romans. So thank you very much for tuning in. Please grab your Bible, assuming that you are not driving. And uh, let's dig into this. Before we do that, why don't you bow your heads and let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. I pray that you will honor this time. I pray that you will be here with me now. Speak through me and speak directly to that person that's watching or listening to this right now, Lord. We love you and we want to know you more. <sighs> Praise you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So this week we are um, going into Acts chapter 13. This is almost our halfway point through the book of Acts. Uh, there's 28 chapters in Acts and we're on 13, so we're not quite halfway there. But one of the things that we see from here on out is the book shifts its focus to now be uh, including Paul. And hi, Lexi. Hi. Yes. Did you want to get on camera? You want attention. Look at you. I'll give you one pet and then you need to go. Okay. That's it. That's it. I got to give a study. We're talking now. Nope, no more pets. No more pets for you. I'm sorry. Yes, you're very sweet. <clears throat> okay, sorry, tangent. She is very sweet, but we got work to do. Let's get through the Bible. So, um, Acts. From here on out, we are going to be looking at the Apostle Paul and his, his missionary journeys. Now, in Acts, we are going to look at three missionary journeys that he takes. There is... Uh, a potential fourth missionary journey that he goes on, that that's actually referenced in the book of Titus, um, but it's not mentioned in Acts. So we won't be covering that um, in this study uh, in particular, because we're going through Acts and we will see the three missionary journeys. We'll see him um, travel back to Jerusalem, be uh, arrested in Jerusalem. He's going to be uh, presented before different officials. Uh, and then he's eventually going to make his way all the way to Rome in prison in multiple different places. Um, and we're also going to see him shipwrecked. I want to pull up this graphic again. Um, we've used this before, but I, I really enjoy it. This is just uh, straight out of my Bible. Uh, I just scanned it. But what we're looking at here is a timeline of um, Paul's life and the different elements that, that happened in that life. So where we're at right now, um, as you look at it, is we are right before or right at his first missionary journey, which is um, somewhere between AD 46 and 48. So across the next two weeks, chapter 13 and 14, we're going to see his first missionary journey. And we're going to cover it in two weeks. But keep in mind that this is a span of two years of him traveling around that Luke, who is the author of Acts, is going to document for us. The thing that's uh, amazing to look at is all of the letters that Paul writes, for the most part, he writes from prison. So the time that he spends in prison... Um, under house arrest or literally in prison, it gives us, it gives him the time to be able to write to these other churches that he's going to first meet on this first mission, missionary journey. So let's flip over to Acts chapter 13. I'm going to come back to this chart um, multiple times in the next, uh, I think we roughly have 13 weeks, 14 weeks that I'm going to use for the remaining uh, chapters that we have. Okay, so we're actually going to pick it up on Acts 12, 25. Um, 
today. So, uh, Acts 12, 25. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. So, I want to pause right there real quick. I don't know if you've noticed this, but this is, it, it, it is really interesting to me how many different names people have, right? Uh, you have John, who's also named Mark. You have Simon, who's also named Peter. Uh, I've got a whole list of them here. Um, you've got Jude slash Judas, or is it Thaddeus? You've got Nathaniel or Bartholomew. Mew. Uh, you've got, and those guys are specifically in the, the group of disciples. You've got um, Simeon or Niger, we're going to uh, talk about him today. You can have Bar-Jesus or Elimaeus, that's also referenced for today. So why do they have all these different names? And I keep talking about it, the Saul versus Paul, and up until this point, we keep talking about Saul, but his name is also Paul, and from here on out, we're going to see him as Paul. Well, this is something new I learned this week, uh, which opened my eyes. I had always assumed that similar to Simon Peter, in Matthew, I think it's 16, you see Jesus say to Simon, you I'm going to call Peter. And the name Peter is uh, means rock. Now, it's small rock. It's not like big giant rock. But he's also called Cephas. And and this, this question is, okay, well, which is it? Is his name Simon, Peter, or Cephas? W- which is his name? Well, his birth name is Simon. Jesus calls him Peter, and the Aramaic for Peter is Cephas. And so that's why he has those three different names. So I always assumed when it came to Saul and Paul that he would start being known as Paul as his Christian name. Not so. It turns out that specifically with the apostle Paul or Saul, Saul is his Jewish name. Saul being the first king of the kings of Jerusalem, of Israel, was Saul. Uh, and, And that is his Jewish name. His Greek name is Paul. And we now see, because he's now... Antioch is now his hub, and as we look at the rest of Acts, he's going out throughout the Hellenistic region, the Greek region, and so he is using his Greek name, Paul. That's the reason for the shift. Now, this, culturally speaking, is not something that we run into today where people have multiple different names. It was a common practice back then. Um, In fact, you had, uh, from a Greek standpoint, uh, they would have three different Greek names, but then you would also have cultural names as well. Um, And in fact, I want to pull up, um, let me see the reference here. Um, Yeah, okay. Sorry, just had to catch my notes. So the NIV application commentary... Um, specifically as it relates to the uh, names. Roman citizens had three names, a paranomen, a nomen, and a cognomen. Uh, The apostles' first two are not mentioned in the New Testament. Paul uh, was his cognomen, which actually, Paul means little. He supposedly also was a small small man. I don't know if that name was given to him 
to make light of that fact uh, or because it also rhymed with Saul. Uh, okay, so Paul was his cognomen uh, and inscriptions show that often the cognomen of Jews sounded like their Jewish name, Saul, Paul, as is the case here. As Paul entered the Gentile phase of his ministry, he would have gone by his Roman name. Thus, the view that his name changed resulting from conversion is wrong. So that, that was a, a big eye-opener for me this week that I didn't realize that Paul is Saul. He's just using his uh, Roman name, and it, it has nothing to do with his conversion to uh, Christianity. So one of the things that I want you to notice, so we are going to see him from here on out. He's going to be called Paul. But another thing that's very interesting that I want you to pay attention to as we go through chapter 13 is the order of the names that Luke gives us as he's listing people, specifically as it correlates to Barnabas and Paul uh, and John, who is also named Mark. Mark being the apostle who is with Jesus who writes the gospel of Mark. Okay, now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, uh, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Notice one the order there. Saul is mentioned last. But the other thing that, that you need to notice in this group, a couple different things on, on this group listing, it's very diverse. You'll notice that, that it's, it's very diverse. The, the, the locations where these people are from, both in uh, uh, geographic, geographically speaking, from a, a cultural speaking, as well as economic, you have this uh, Manian uh, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Herod the Tetrarch, that is Herod the Great's son, one of his many sons who would take over a portion of Herod the Great's kingdom so this guy grew up with him. Now this word specifically, um, santroponos, poios, um, I don't speak Greek, sorry. Uh, it translates to foster brother or close friend from childhood. We don't know if he literally was in the same, if he was a foster brother, but we do know that he was very close from childhood. And yet you see him with the church in Antioch, whereas King Herod, uh, the Tetrarch, you see him go a, a totally different direction. But it's interesting is, is that they grew up together. So chances are this was a, a well-off uh, individual. Another thing to notice at the beginning in, in verse 1, now in the church in Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. But isn't John the Baptist said to be the last prophet? This prophets from here on out, do prophets still exist today? Well, the Old Testament definition of a prophet, the Jewish prophets, you had in Jewish history, the Holy Spirit would act, interacting with one individual to impart uh, wisdom, guidance, whatever God wanted to impart on the people of the Jews would be through the prophets. Um, in, in the days of Abraham and Moses, uh, etc., it was the Holy Spirit interacted with individuals and then they then shared their message. You, you had the judges and you had the prophets, um, and they would interact and give that message. Why in the New Testament do we not see this? Why are the prophets different? I don't know why I'm waiting for an answer. I can't hear you, but um, it's because of the Holy Spirit. Pentecost, 
Jesus specifically said that it is good for me to leave you because when I leave, God's going to give you the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And when you become a believer, you open up your heart to the Holy Spirit. God, now we are able to interact one-on-one with God. We do not need to go to a priest. We don't need a prophet. We don't need somebody who's giving guidance uh, as was the old days. Now with the New Testament and with Pentecost and with Jesus, uh, we have the ability, each and every single one of us is able to speak directly to God. We don't have to go to the Holy of Holies once a year as was custom in Jewish tradition. So prophets, do exist today in the sense that a giving of the prophetic word. What does that mean and what are we talking about here? The idea is is that the Holy Spirit will sometimes work through a person to share a message with somebody else. You very well might have um, given a prophetic word and you didn't even know it. A good example of that is when you say something like the, the right words just come out in the moment and you didn't even know how, what to say, or it just came out. And it was just like, wow, what was that? that? That really didn't feel like it was me, but it was something that person needed to hear. That is an example of a prophetic word. So that's what they're talking about here. Um, in the church in the Antioch, there were prophets and there were teachers. Teachers is the idea of, that's exactly what we're doing right now. It's studying of scripture and then the sharing of that knowledge uh, so that people can grow closer in their understanding of God. So we see in this first group, you have both uh, prophets and teachers. Okay, continuing on. So we know that it's a very diverse group, and that's important to keep in mind because Antioch is a very, very diverse uh, hub in the Roman Empire. Okay, so they're up in Antioch. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set, for me, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. I gave a talk um, on this. um, I think it's Matthew 6. If you do a search for um, my name, Dave Bigler, and fasting, you will see that that talk. It's, It's right after or in the midst of the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus specifically talks about fasting and prayer. Fasting is something that we're still called to do today. It is a good practice to get into specifically when you're looking for guidance from the Holy Spirit. The idea being is is that you deprive yourself uh, of food for a period of time. Um, A lot of people do a three-day fast. There's a 24-hour fast. But the idea being is is that you're, you're spending time praying and you're depriving yourself physically to allow yourself to concentrate even more so and be more attuned to the Holy Spirit, which it does work, absolutely does work. If you are in a very difficult situation where you need guidance from the Holy Spirit on which direction to go, taking two days to do a fast and to be constantly praying in that time is a good practice. And and again, go and listen to that teaching I believe it is Matthew 6 in which Jesus talks about fasting, and I I do a whole thing on fasting. Fasting is different than intermittent fasting from a dietary standpoint to lose weight. It's a totally different motivation here. But the point being is, is that the church in Antioch is going about their 
their work, uh, this word worshiping, um, it, it literally means ministering. That's what the word means. Uh, lesterogio, um, again, sorry, I don't speak Greek. But it, it means ministering is the idea. So they were going about the work of the church, but they were also fasting and praying for guidance on what the Holy Spirit and God wanted them to do. And it was in that time that the Holy Spirit said, set aside Barnabas and Saul, Paul, I have work for them to do. Uh, continuing on. So uh, verse four, the two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, uh, Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. So this is Mark, John also known as Mark, the disciple of Jesus who will write um, the gospel according to Mark. So uh, I want to pull up a map here. Um, this is Paul's first missionary journey. And we see their hub is Antioch. Uh, and then they go to the, the coast, uh, Seleucia. And then from there, they go out to Cyprus, Salamis, And then they're going to continue on. And we're going to see this today, that they're going to travel over to Paphos. And then they're going to leave the island, go up to Perga, then go up to uh, Antioch, uh, Pisidiana, Antioch, then go over to Iconium, uh, uh, Lystra, Derby, and then they're going to follow back, and that's we're going to hit that next week, and then eventually they come back to Antioch. Again, this is a two-year time frame, and just as a reference, so that you, I mean, this is the uh, an accurate map still to this day. What I want to show you is this is Am, uh, excuse me, this is Google Maps overlay. So when you look at them side by side. Cyprus is still Cyprus, but a lot of this is in Turkey that they're traveling. Modern-day Turkey is where all of this is taking place. Um, so let's pick it back up. We know that John was with them. Mark, the Apostle Mark, is with them as a helper. We're going to come back to that. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulius. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. Okay, so a couple of different things here. One, proconsul. What is a proconsul? Let's look this up. So I've got my uh, Bible dictionary here. Oh, I'm losing my book here. Okay, so proconsul. A Roman official, generally a uh, praetorian, excuse me, generally a praetorian or counselor rank who served as deputy counsel in the Roman provinces. The term of office was often one year, though it could be longer in special instances, but the powers of the proconsul were unlimited in both the military and civil areas. Okay, and now I also want to pull up from our uh, NIV application commentary. Um, not that one. Not that one. Yes. Uh, in the Roman Empire, the peaceful and civilized provinces where no legions had been quarantined, about 10 in number, were administered by the Senate. A provincial governor had the title of proconsul. 
that is in place of council or functioning of the power of the council. Cyprus was declared a centurial province in 22 BC. So at this time, it is one of those provinces. So the idea being is, is that this guy is um, without council, in place of the council. He is in charge of everything. What he says goes. This is the top dog on the island, so to speak. Now we see this guy, uh, Bar-Jesus, um, whose name is also Elimaeus, um, the sorcerer. Now we saw just a handful of weeks ago in Acts chapter 8, we saw Philip and Peter encounter uh, Simon the sorcerer. That's Acts 8. And from him we get the term simony. As you recall with Simon the sorcerer, he's this guy that has a, a big following and then uh, Philip comes into town uh, performing miracles, declaring the gospel, and Simon's like, oh my gosh, I need to join this guy because he clearly has a huge following. I want to get this following as well, and people consider me to be a god with the wisdom that I have speaking for as a god. Uh, so he professes salvation and is baptized, but you can see very clearly in Acts 8 that, that he's simply doing it because he wants to get the crowd's attention. And we know that. We know that he's, his motivations are in the wrong place because he asks to receive the Holy Spirit and he, he offers money to Peter. He says, here's a bunch of money. Teach me to, to impart the Holy Spirit as well so that I can lay hands on people and they can be uh, uh, indwelt with the Holy Spirit as well. And then Peter lays into him uh, some very, very harsh words, and we're going to see um, Saul, Paul, do the exact same thing here. So, but Elimaeus the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight into Elimaeus and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, and he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. We still see this sort of thing today. It's not as, as crazy as this in the sense we, we don't call them sorcerers, but there are so many false prophets. There are so many people that teach a doctrine different than what Jesus does. And, and you might see them in churches, but more often than not, um, they're simply uh, prominent figures that, that have massive, massive followings, uh, TV show hosts, uh, etc. people who lead people astray from what the gospel teaches. Um, and that's an example. This, this individual, yeah, he's called a sorcerer, and we wouldn't use such a harsh term today, but we see this today as well. And they cause just as much harm today leading people away, saying that, all you need is yourself. All you need to do is believe in yourself for you are powerful enough in your own right. The Christian perspective is the opposite of that, is, is that you can't do it on your own. And the reality is, is that you're going to fail day by day. 
And that's the freedom of Christianity is acknowledging the fact that you are not perfect, but that you are perfectly forgiven in Christ. And I acknowledge every day I make mistakes. And that's what it is to be a Christian is to admit that <laughs> I'm going to screw up. I'm going to screw up in this talk. I'm going to screw up uh, after this. I'm going to screw up constantly. But the forgiveness that Jesus gives us is the, the grace that we receive from Christ. And that's the joy that we have in knowing that we don't have to be perfect. Society says that you do, that, that you do need to be perfect, especially on social media. We need to portray this perfect person. You know, keeping up with the Joneses has gotten pretty, pretty crazy. So, uh, pro-council, this official uh, whose name we got earlier, Sergius, I think his name is? Yeah, Sergius uh, Paulius is this guy's name. Um, Sergius Paulius has... Uh, has been listening to this Bar Jesus guy, um, and he has the proconsul's ear, but he seeks out Saul and Barnabas. As it said here, Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas is listed first because he wants to hear what they have to say. And it's interesting. So we do see Saul, whose name is Paul, perform a little bit of a miracle here, right? He uses all these harsh words against this false prophet. And at the end of it, he says, you're now blind, basically. Because of what you've done, you're blind. And then he can't see. And then we see, uh, when the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed. Now, here's a question. Did he believe because of the miracle? And we get the answer right here. For he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. He believed because of what Paul was saying and teaching not because of the miracle. When you look through the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, people, salvation doesn't come through miracles. People don't believe and have a, a, a salvational relationship with the Lord because of the miracles. It does draw people in, but it, it's completely a work in the heart that causes a person to believe, not miracles. So that's what happens here is, is that we see a conversion of the pro-council. He was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. This is going to come back. From Paphios, Paul and his companions, notice the switch there. Up until this point in 13, Barnabas is always listed first and Saul is listed last. Now, he started to be called Paul, and he's listed first. Barnabas isn't even mentioned here. It's just Paul and his companions. It's the same group. Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. So John, Mark, leaves and returns to Jerusalem. We're going to come back to that at the end. From Perga, they went on to uh, Pisidian, Antioch, on the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them saying, Brothers, you have a word. if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. So I'm going to stop right there, and I want to actually talk about, uh, I, I want to get some, some reference here before we go into um, Paul's sermon that he's going to give. And what I want to reference here, I think it's the green one. Yeah, okay, so from Perga... Paul and Barnabas traveled inland. So they were on Cyprus. Paul and Barnabas traveled inland and northward to the higher altitudes. 
and they minister in cities south of Galatia. They presumably took the paved Roman highway, the Via Sebastia, from Perga to Antioch, Antioch of Pisidia, was an important civil and military center of the Romans, which lay about 3,600 feet above sea level. The city actually belonged to Galatia, but it was near uh, Pisidia and thus got its name as there was another Antioch in the same district. In Galatians 4.13, Paul says that it was because of an illness that he first preached the gospel in this area. Sir William Ramsey's uh, uh, Ramsey suggests that Paul had caught malaria in the low-lying territory and went went to reciprocate, uh, uh, recuperate. Excuse me, I'm flubbing up left and right. I told you I was going to screw up. Uh, went to recuperate in the higher altitudes of the north. But we cannot be sure about this. One of the wealthiest business families in Antioch was the family of Sergius Paulius, the proconsul of Cyprus who had been converted in chapter 13, 5 through 12. We just read that. It is not surprising then that an expert in the archaeology of the area, S. Mitchell, writes, we can hardly avoid the conclusion that the proconsul himself had suggested to Paul that he make Antioch his next port of call, no doubt providing him with letters of introduction to aid his passage on his way. So, Keep in mind, this is a span of two years' time. So we make it sound like this is across two weeks. But when he's in Cyprus, he clearly has a strong connection with the proconsul. This guy becomes a believer, and he likely stayed in his house for an extended period of time. But the disciple needs to keep moving. He needs to keep moving and teaching, and so they know they're going to leave the island. So the, the, the stipulation here is, the, is that... The proconsul said, well, you've got to go up north to Antioch of Pisidia so that my family's there. You can stay there. They'll set you up. Uh, you will be like royalty there. Here's a letter of introduction to my family. Go and stay in my house. Enjoy. And I would wager that's one of the reasons that they went up there because their job was, I mean, they were just traveling around led by the Holy Spirit with where to go. So it's very likely one of the reasons that they went up north. I find this interesting, the additional insight, the Galatians 4.13, in which Paul says it was because of an illness that he first preached the gospel in this area. So it's just interesting information. That's one of the things that's amazing to me about the Bible is the fact that it interconnects so perfectly. And when you read the letters that Paul is going to write, he's writing them in the midst of Acts. So Acts is written by Luke, and it's the story of the Acts of the Apostles, but specifically, it's mostly Peter and Paul. But we're going to see as we look forward, I showed you that graph at the beginning, all the letters that are written. And I'm going to try to hit on that as in the next 13 weeks as we go through it, is that when we're in a specific town, I'm going to reference the fact that, okay, he is going to write to Timothy from prison here. He's going to write uh, the Romans in this one. He's going to write these different letters while he he is in prison at this time, which is kind of interesting. And from that, you can actually get through the cross-references this additional information. Uh, we're going to come right back to this in a second. Um, so I want to leave it open here. Okay, so now we are coming to Paul giving his um, message. 
So they're going to uh, the synagogue. And as you've seen thus far, they always do this. In each town they come to, the very first place they go to is to synagogue on the Sabbath. They listen, they join, and in this situation, um, one of the priests says, gentlemen, if you have a word to share, please do it. And that opens the floor for him. Remember that the message of salvation goes first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. We get that in Romans. Um, let me see, I have a reference here. Romans 1.16, you will see that uh, as a good cross-reference if you want to look that up, is, is that um, salvation comes first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. So that's what Paul, we're going to see more of that. Okay, so after the reading of the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them saying, brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Verse 16, standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me, excuse me, the God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors and he's now going to go and do a, an amazing history lesson, very, very similar to what Stephen did earlier in Acts in front of the Sanhedrin, slightly different. And I'm going to speak on that in a, in a moment. Um, standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of the country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness and he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. Now, we have just skimmed massive chunks of scripture. You have Exodus 6, 6 is the reference to um, that they'd be mighty power in the land. Um, Numbers 14, 33, Psalm 95, 10. Um, all of these are references. He, is, he knows his Hebrew scripture. He knows the Torah. He knows uh, um, his Bible very well. And he's specifically referencing the same scriptures that everybody in that synagogue would know. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness. He overthrew seven nations in Canaan. Uh, that's a reference to um, uh, Deuteronomy 7.1, and we know those seven nations. It's the Hittites, the Gershites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hittites, and the Jebusites are those four nations. I'm going to just continue reading rather than doing the references to all of this information because um, I don't know if you can see this, but I circled all the references and wrote them down for myself on the side. It's, it's an amazing summary that he gives, and it's all backed up by Scripture. That's the important thing to note. He overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, and Saul's namesake, of the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, that's another element, is, is that Saul, Paul, is of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled for 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. That's a reference to Isaiah, uh, excuse me, 1 Samuel 13. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, that's King David, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached 
repentance and baptism to all people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, who do you suppose I am? He said, who do you suppose I am? I am not the one you were looking for, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Matthew 3.11 is a reference there. Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and the rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in, in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in the tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news, what God promised our ancestors. He has fulfilled for us their children by raising up Jesus. He is now doing an amazing lesson and speaking directly to the Jews and saying, look, our whole Hebrew Bible speaks of the coming Messiah and Jesus is him. Jesus is the Messiah. As it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. That's Psalm 2-7. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessing promised to David. That's Isaiah 55-3. So it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. Psalm 16-10. Do you see? He knows the scripture so well that he is pointing out all these different spots where the, the Hebrew Bible, well, at this point, it's just the Bible. It's just scripture. We don't have the New Testament yet. It's literally in the process of being written. All points to Jesus. Now, when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He died. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to pay, you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. Now, that's a reference to Habakkuk 1.5. And that's specific, specifically a, a, a word of warning to Judah um, because of internal corruption that the prophet Habakkuk is giving. But it has a dual meaning here. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. It's a dual fulfillment of prophecy in the sense that the Jews of this day, many will not believe. And wondrous signs are happening right in front of them. Jesus and all his miracles. And now you have Paul teaching to them, proclaiming to them the word, and yet their, hard, their hearts are hardened. As Paul and Barnabas, notice that name switch, as Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. 
When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them continue in the grace of God. So he gives this message in the synagogue and people are moved. And no doubt the entire next week was, was uh, Paul and Barnabas going and speaking to all of these different Jewish people and just explaining who Jesus was, telling them about his ministry, and explaining the gospel. On the next Sabbath, verse 44, on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it, do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. We now turn to the Gentiles, for this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Isaiah 49, 6 is a reference there. Romans uh, is the next, uh, it's the very next book after Acts. And it is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the Romans, to, to the believers in Rome. And Romans chapter 9 through 11, you're going to see Paul um, speak directly to the lost sheep of Israel. And the idea there is, is that these are the Jews who refuse to acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah. And he has a heart for them because, as you'll recall, Saul, as his Jewish name is, he is, was a Pharisee among Pharisees. He was taught under uh, Gamaliel, who was a, a very, very high teacher um, and was uh, the high priest at one point. He was a Pharisee among Pharisees who, who went out and, and persecuted the early church. So he has a heart because he was a Jew among Jews who followed the law to the nth degree, and now he is used by God to speak directly to them, but they reject it. And he's got a, a solid heart for them because he's one of them who saw the truth of the fact that the whole Hebrew Bible all points to Jesus as the Messiah. And so if you want, uh, check out Romans chapter 9 through 11 and read what Paul specifically has to say in his heart for these people. And it's really sad to see that that the first week that they give the message, it's the usual attendance that they usually have in their small little synagogue in this, in this town. But word spreads so rapidly that nearly the entire town is now in their synagogue the following week. And jealousy sets in. Jealousy exists. We are humans. It exists among pastors, leaders. It doesn't matter whether you are a, a prominent figure um, in a, in a massive church, you're still human. You still sin. You still have pride. You still have jealousy. And imagine this. Imagine that, that you're a small church and a guest speaker comes in and has this message to share and everyone goes, gets, gets all excited about it. It's this amazing God moment and you experience it and you feel it. You're the head pastor of this church. And it's a small little church. Maybe, maybe you've only got like 30, 40 families that attend. So maybe 60 members in this church. And then somebody comes and visits that's this big name person and you are moved by this. But then the following week, 
Your church is exploding at the seams. You have growth that you've never seen before and jealousy sets in because you have wanted to grow your flock. You've wanted to grow this church so much and now this person comes in and all of a sudden you're, you're busting at the seams and jealousy sets in. I'm curious if, if that pastor in that situation of that small church, after that big name speaker comes in and leaves, could they have the tendency to knock them down, to, to bring them low, to try to bring themselves back up just because of their jealousy? I mean, it's human nature. It's human nature. And it's unfortunate. But as a result of this, the Jewish leaders at that synagogue um, see the massive following and start heaping insults and, and, and completely denying these guys. And as a result, Paul has these harsh words for them. He says, we had to speak the word of God to you first, since you reject it and you do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, which I think that's kind of like a um, passive aggressive, like, okay, if you don't consider yourself worthy of eternal life, we're going to go and speak to the Gentiles. Verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored uh, the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. So we see the Gentiles who hear this message are excited about this because it means salvation to everyone, not just the Jews. But this line in particular is a unique one, or an interesting one. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. An internal debate in the church is this argument of predestination. And I'm not going to go into it, uh, but the simple idea is, is that um, the argument for predestination is that God knows and has preordained, so to speak, every single person who is going to believe. So this question is, do you honestly have a choice? Predestination says that you're predestined to become a follower. Uh, the word of life is a book that uh, when we look at, at judgment, um, and you have two judgment seats, you have the Bema seat judgment and the judgment seat of Christ. And these are two judgments. And if you are a believer, you go to the judgment seat of Christ. Um, and you don't, uh, the, excuse me, those two are the same, the Bema seat judgment uh, and the great white throne judgment. Um, the great white throne judgment is when every single person who is not a believer has to go and attest to the things that they did. If their name is written in the book of life, they go to the judgment seat of Christ. And what that is, is that saying, okay, what works did you do? And you're getting into heaven, but there is going to be some sort of a reward for the good deeds that we do. But regardless, you're still going into heaven. But your name has to be written in the book of life. So the question is, are all the names already written in the book of life right now? And the answer is yes. You have to keep in mind, God's timeline is not our timeline. God knows the beginning from the end. So if a person's going to believe, God already knows it. But then do they have the choice? And that's where the argument of predestination comes in. And my argument is, you must make the conscious choice. You have to believe in your heart and make that commitment in your heart. Uh, Simon, uh, uh, the sorcerer, as you recall, he said out loud a profession of faith, but he clearly didn't believe in his heart, and it was evidenced by what he did. The fruit of what he did was, is what today is known as simony. He tried to buy his way in. 
in that same way, salvation, the critical element is it is a choice that every single person must make in their heart. But God already knows what that choice is. So that's where that, that predestination thing, for you parents, you, you see that your child is given a choice. And a good parent will allow their child to make a choice so that they can grow and learn. But you pretty much as a parent, you know which way they're going to go. But you still need to give them that opportunity to choose. So that verse here uh, in 48, the end of 48, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. It's a long tangent. I'm going to leave it. Verse 49, the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. But the Jewish leaders incited God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men in the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from the region. So they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. So a couple things real quick. You see um, jealousy that leads the leaders of that synagogue to incite the leadership of the town, prominent men and women, to show their hatred for Paul and Barnabas. And as a result, they're no longer welcome in that town. So they do. The, there's this phrase, they shake the dust off their feet. One of the practices that Jews would do in this day is when you came into Jerusalem before going into the city, you would shake the dust off your feet. And the superstition was is that you didn't want to bring any um, bad will or um, any heresy into Jerusalem. You wanted to leave it at, at the city gate. You wanted to, to shake the dust of the badness before you go into God's city. Well, now they're doing that same thing. And the idea being is, is that we're leaving this city and we're shaking the dust from your city off of our sandals before we move on. We're done with you. You guys can wallow in your own issues. We're not taking your issues with us. Best of luck as we go. That's the idea of shaking your dust from that town. It's like, you know what? I'm, I've had it with this town. Let's move on. This place is dead anyway. Let's keep moving. And that's the idea there. Okay, so this wraps up uh, chapter 13. Next week, we're going to go on to chapter 14 in uh, Iconium is where we're going to pick it up um, on Paul's missionary journey. We'll come back and then we'll see the end of it in chapter 14. <laughs> chapter 14, we see more of the same. You do see people who uh, receive the message from Paul and from Barnabas with open arms. And then you do see, I mean, you see it to the extent, I'm not gonna give too much away or spoil it, but you see it to the extent that they are worshiped uh, as gods. And, and Paul and Barnabas are like, what are you doing? Don't do that. And then fast forward just a brief little amount of time, the same people stone Paul to death. They think they killed him, but he doesn't actually die. I don't think it's a miracle here. I think they just stone him and leave him outside the city for dead, and he's not actually dead, and he recovers. The same group that is praising him as being this amazing God turns around and stones him. I mean, that, that's very similar. Jesus, we saw the exact same thing. Palm Sunday, as he enters Jerusalem, Hosanna in the highest, save us. And then they turn around and they're chanting, the mob is chanting, crucify him. It's the same group. 
And we're going to see the fickle nature of the mob continue in chapter 14. Before I wrap up, one of the things that I want to hit on is the dissension in the ranks, so to speak, and this idea of jealousy in leadership. So at the very beginning, I, I mentioned to keep note of the order which Luke writes the names. As you recall, um, Barnabas is listed at the very beginning. The church in Antioch, Barnabas, uh, and he lists all the names, and Saul is last. Uh, and then continuing on, when they go to Cyprus, um, we see Barnabas and Saul mentioned. Uh, but then there's a shift. Um, on Cyprus, when they go, um, their time in Cyprus, something is happening. Something is happening in the ranks. And we see from Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga and Pamphylia. So something happened in their time on Cyprus. And what I believe is happening here is, is that Paul is being, he's taking on the role that God has designed for him to do and to be. He's becoming the man, the leader, the speaker, the teacher that God has designed him to be, to be able to start up all of these churches. And you'll notice Barnabas stays with him for a time. They are going to separate coming up. But Barnabas goes from being number one to being number two, but they still stay a pair and continue in their, in their journey. Did you notice that the apostle Mark, who's called John here, but Mark is the same uh, apostle of Jesus. He was the, one of the original 12. He's going to write the gospel according to Mark. He joins them as their helper, but then he leaves and goes back to the mainland. He goes back to Jerusalem. And we see that uh, in verse 13. John left them to return to Jerusalem. Here, we see it just as the light mentioned. John left. But in the future, in Acts 15, 38, we're going to see Paul say that John deserted them. So what happened there? We don't know. We don't know for certain, but... I would argue this, that there was some jealousy going on. This is just my guess. In just reading the scriptures and knowing human nature, you have Mark, who was with Jesus for years as his disciple. You have Barnabas, who is a prominent teacher, the leader of the church in Antioch. You see this group sent out from the church in Antioch to go out on this missionary journey Saul gets to join, and the Holy Spirit clearly sends out Barnabas and Saul, and Mark joins, but Mark is clearly an important, significant person. He is a disciple that was with Jesus, but he's sent as a helper. And on Cyprus, as the teaching goes, I think we see Paul coming into his own, into his, his he, he preaches and he speaks and people are being converted. Barnabas, no doubt, can see it as well, and my guess is Similar to John the Baptist, John the Baptist said, I must be less so that he can be more. Not speaking about Jesus, obviously, but I think in the same way, Barnabas saw that, okay, God is doing something in this guy here. Paul is, is awesome in preaching the word. I need to support him in this. My guess, this is just my guess, is, is that there was some tension because Barnabas is John, Mark, 
cousin. They're cousins. And my guess is, is that Mark didn't really take too well to the fact that Barnabas, who was the leader, is now secondary to Paul, who was this Pharisee of Pharisees, who literally stood there as Stephen was killed in support of it. Uh, he has this miraculous experience with Jesus on the road to Damascus, and now all of a sudden, he's this amazing man of God. Again, I don't know this for a fact. This is just my guess, because I know me, and I know human nature, and I know I would be jealous of this guy who never even met Jesus, but now is becoming this amazing man of God and who will write the majority of the rest of this book. That's just a guess. <clears throat> Which is greater? Here's a question for you. Uh, church leadership. You see big, massive mega churches with thousands upon thousands of congregants, members, then you see small little tiny churches that have, you know, as I mentioned before, uh, uh, as an example, this is a church that has maybe 50, 60 families that, that go to that church. Well, which church is more successful? I don't know. Only God can answer that. The Holy Spirit will build up churches to what he wants to use them for. But my question is, as far as the leadership is concerned, who has greater impact that head pastor who has a massive congregation might have multiple campuses, but doesn't share the pulpit and doesn't build up leaders or that smaller church in which that pastor builds up and sends out, builds up and sends out, builds up and sends out others to start other churches. Celicia and I, my wife and I, when we lived in Portland, Oregon, we moved to Portland it's a little bit of a tangent, but it's a good story. We were living in Denver. I wanted to move back to the Northwest, so we moved to Portland. Celicia's parents were living in the Oregon coast, and they were going to a church in Bandon. They, they had their retirement home in Bandon, and they were going to church, um, uh, Bandon Christian Fellowship. Amazing church. And the pastor at that church, Matt is his name, trained at a church called Applegate, was the church that he came from. And so Celicia's parents suggested, hey, there's another pastor who also trained with Pastor Matt at Applegate who has a church in Portland. His name is Brett Metter, and he has a church called Athey Creek Christian Fellowship. So Celicia and I started going there. At the time when we started going there, it was in a middle school. They didn't even have a church building. They would set up every Sunday at a middle school. They would fill up the, the uh, cafeteria area, basically, uh, of that middle school. Um, but we saw in the three-year time that we were at Athey Creek, we saw it grow. Well, to this day, Athey Creek Christian Fellowship is a massive, massive church. They've since built this um, warehouse-style church. It's beautiful. I actually haven't been there, but I watch. Salish and I love watching their messages. But every weekend, because of COVID, their online presence, they will have watching live. More than 5,000 people will watch. Brett and Matt trained together at Applegate. You know what's crazy? The church I go to now, the pastor Rick also trained with Matt and with Brett at Applegate Christian Fellowship. That's Adirondack Christian Fellowship. It's based here in Wilton. 
And the amazing thing to me is this, well, what happened at Applegate? How cool is that? That you see from that church, you see that leader. Now, I've never met him. His name's John. I've never met the guy. But what a testament to an amazing man of God that he built up disciples that went out and started their own churches. Now, my question to you is this. What if he was overcome by pride? What if he refused to build others up because he wanted all the limelight? There's no doubt that, that he has done an amazing thing because he, that is more and better disciples are built up because of him because he built up others to go out. I mean, that's the whole point of discipleship. It's a long tangent to come back to it, but uh, that was one of my takeaways from this in, in looking at Acts chapter 3 is you see a, a jockeying of leadership. You see Saul now uh, going more by Paul because he's in Roman Greek-speaking areas, but you see him go from being um, a lesser to being the leader. You see uh, John, uh, also known as Mark, you see him leave and Paul attests that he deserted them and that's just my guess. And you still see this to this day. So my challenge is, is that people may very well be listening to this that are pastors themselves or one day will be a pastor. Make sure that you are constantly listening to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And if you see um, people come into your church in leadership, maybe even employees, that, that you could see them potentially start up a church, I challenge you. Bring them under your wing, train them, build them up, and send them out. You very well might lose some of your congregation. That's fine. The Holy Spirit will build it back. But you will do something even greater when you see that church grow. Because the whole point of this entire thing is to make more and better disciples. Introduce people to Christ. And the best way anybody can do that is to have life-changing relationships with people so that they can go on and do the same thing with other people. So that the love of Christ can grow. I could continue talking about this for hours. I'm going to stop because I'm rambling. Once you bow your heads with me, let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that your heart will be on all the people that are listening to this and watching this, that, that, that we will seek after you and that we will put aside our jealousy of others and lift others up if appropriate to do so. I pray, Lord, that each person listening or watching this would, would be receptive to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for Paul. Thank you for Barnabas. Thank you for Mark. Thank you for these individuals, these, these um, awesome, awesome early disciples that, that boldly went out on the mission field to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for them. And thank you that we are able to today, thousands of years later, read their story and learn from it. We love you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Proud this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There you go. That is Acts chapter 13. Tune back in uh, for Acts 14, where we are going to see the rest of Paul's first missionary journey. We're going to see him stoned and left for dead, um, but we're going to see him recover. Sorry to spoil that for you, but he doesn't die. Have a great week, guys.